Good morning, good evening, good winter light to all of our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for another deep dive into the tundra of the human soul uh, for the second in Ingmar Bergman's trilogy of faith, trilogy of existential dread, trilogy of so many things that it has been called over the years. Out uh, of course, the 1963 film Winter Light. Uh, joining me once again, they have not thrown themselves into the sea in despair over our episode of Through a Glass Darkly. And then after watching Winter Light, we were making it through the long drag of the winter. Uh, some on this podcast are having a longer winter than others, to be sure. Although here in California, you know, it gets down almost to the 30s sometimes, and it too is painful. Uh, my name is Scott and I, I'll be your host for this evening. Uh, I don't, I've realized I don't often introduce myself on these shows. Uh, I should probably <laughs> correct that for my own brand management purposes. Um, but thoroughly well-branded uh, is David Blakesley. Uh, David, thanks for joining once again. Uh, yes, another Tuesday in the Vale of Tears. <laughs> <laughs> nice to be back with you guys again and uh, ready to take up the, uh, the, the mantle of Talking Bergman with you all. Uh, Trevor Barrett, Tre Trevor, thanks for coming aboard again. Hey, thanks. I came back from a nice sunny vacation in Mexico for this. Uh, That's right. So here we are. <laughs> Quite the collision. Uh, and sharing the despair over the mild but still uh, frightful for us winters is my fellow Californian, Arik Devins. Arik, how are you? I am uh, under the weather with a cold, which I feel like makes me like perfect to talk about this. Oh, film, yeah, actually. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping my own uh, sleep deprivation will somehow get me more in tune with uh, Pastor Erickson. We shall see. <laughs> uh, this is, of course, Ingmar Bergen's 1963 film, which he made immediately following up through A Glass Darkly, which we discussed on our last episode. Um, and continues in some ways his uh, so-called trilogy that he himself has distanced himself from in the past uh, as calling it that, but which the three films, which will forever be paired. And so we're doing so too. All the more excuse to talk about Bergman. Why not? We'll take it. Uh, this is spine number 210. Uh, and Criterion describes it as such. God, why hast thou forsaken me? With winter light, Ingmar Bergman explores the search for redemption in a meaningless existence. Small-town pastor Tomas Eriksson, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, performs his duties mechanically before a dwindling congregation, including his stubbornly devoted lover, Marta, played by Ingrid Thulin. When he is asked to assuage a troubled parish, uh, parishioners, uh, played by Max von Sydow's debilitating fear of nuclear annihilation, Tomas is terrified to find that he, cannot, that can, he can provide nothing but his own doubt. The beautifully photographed winter light is an unsettling look at the human craving for personal validation in a world seemingly abandoned by God. Vintage Bergman, guys. This is, I feel like, kind of his most, not necessarily his most, but one of his most archetypal films, you know? This is one that I watched in kind of my initial blitz of getting into Bergman and was like, oh, this truly is what people mean when they say the Bergman films are thoroughly depressing as this is a thoroughly depressing film offering very little in the way of hope or redemption. You know, Through Glass Darkly gives us a little peek at the end. It has some more, I don't know, humanistic qualities throughout some humor. This is pretty devoid of all that. Uh, it's pretty much just a long dark night of the soul 
capturing that feeling of when you're up in the middle of the night concerned that you've done it all wrong and that everyone despises you and whatever is good about them, you're slowly whittling away. Uh, on that note, how do you guys feel <laughs> about winter light? <laughs> David, I'll start with you. Sure. Well, yeah, this is a this is a film that I really, um, yeah, it, it does feel like a challenge. It's, a, I guess, a bit daunting because it does epitomize so much of Bergman. It does speak, uh, I think, very profoundly to so many different issues. I guess my my opening take is, as, as I just kind of rewatched it for this podcast, is really noting that we've got a, a, a cast of, of individuals who are, uh, in the process of, of uh, rejecting the grace that's being shown to them, looking for something that isn't available, and, you know, whether consciously or unconsciously wrestling with their inability to, you know, reconcile themselves to the life that is versus this kind of indefinable something that they're looking for that isn't quite there, uh, whether it's... Uh, peace and solace and consolation or, or love and ease and acceptance or even just resolution of life's fundamental mysteries. I, this film kind of lays all that before us in a very ordinary setting and uh, also features the worst haircuts I think of any Ingmar Bergman movie I've ever seen. So, <laughs> so you know, it's just, uh, there, there's a lot here and I'm, I'm super eager to hear you guys, uh, thoughts and, and, uh, you know, pick into some of these details. It's a very brief movie, uh, but it leaves a very strong impact. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really glad to be uh, not having to do this as a solo podcast. Certainly, uh, I, I like the dialogue. I think we've got uh, an interesting conversation ahead of us. Trevor, some opening thoughts. Opening thoughts. I I think I mentioned last episode that uh, this is one of my favorite films, and might even be my favorite film. I realize I've said that a few times before in these conversations, and I now you got to back it up, right? <laughs> I, well, I meant it then, but I, I Winterlight has been one of my favorite films for uh, a couple of decades now since the first time I saw it. It was the first Bergman film I ever saw, uh, probably about twenty years ago, not quite, but I remember one January evening going to the local library that has an amazing film selection. And thinking, oh, you know, I should check out this Ingmar Bergman fellow. And I had heard of The Seventh Seal. I'd, you know, seen Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, you know, things like that. But <laughs> I wanted this film that kind of spoke to me just with the cover and with the title, uh, Winter Light. You know, it just seemed to, to suit the mood, I guess. And I love this movie. I, I agree with you that it is dour and and tough to take. But there's something powerful about it, too, that I want to talk about that is, even in this darkness, moving forward. Sometimes just because you have to, because that's, you know, you're alive, you have to keep moving forward, um, even when things seem to be falling apart. And this movie just really, really speaks to me in, in many of those ways. I, 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 I love it. So I'm excited to get into it and also very excited to hear how uh, Arik took it, <laughs> since I think this was your first time. Am I right, Arik? You are right, yeah. Oh, boy. Well, those are my opening thoughts, so. <laughs> well, Arik, how'd you take it? 
uh, I loved it. Um, I, I, I really loved it. Uh, I, I've been, um, I've been watching the, uh, the documentary that, uh, that was made. Ingmar Bergen makes a movie all day, which is very long. <laughs> and I think it's like twice as long as the movie itself. Uh, and just kind of like one of our podcasts. You know, kind of <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, there's a point in there where, um, where Bergman himself claims, I guess, w- before they shot the movie, maybe, or like while they were shooting it, that it was going to be two hours long. And, and I'm like, what did you cut? I want all that stuff that you cut. Um, but no, it's, it's, I, I mean, this is a phenomenally interesting film. It's, so layered uh i think that um it, it just reinvigorated a, a love affair i have with gunnar bjornstrand uh who i think i cannot imagine another actor pulling off that role uh the way that he did it's it, it's you know it's it's a movie where almost nothing happens right it's like it, and yet it, the time just went by so quickly you're like uh, what how am i this entertained like there's nothing happening in this movie really for large large portions i mean there's a 6 minute scene where ingrid thulin is just staring at the camera you know and and it just um it, it just completely captivated me and um i have to say i'm not completely convinced that i agree or understand what bergman thinks he was trying to say about god in this movie and we'll get into that i'm sure um but uh, but yeah, I just uh, you know I really like *Through a Glass Darkly*, but um, I would agree with Trevor that this uh, this is definitely a, a solid notch above that one for me now. It's um it's it's the toppest tier of, of Bergman's for me with uh with like *Wild Strawberries* and um, *Persona* and Seventh Seal* and sort of that level of Bergman. It was just really remarkable. Yeah, it's actually one that I had a hard time getting into for a long time. I first saw it, like I said, I mean at this point it's been. 12 years or so and so I was in college and probably looking for something a a little bit more uh emotionally urgent or a little bit frankly probably a little little bit sexier than this I mean this is a film where even Ingrid Thulin doesn't look good and that's that's really saying something um but the the depressingness of it I think uh turned me off and I think there's something about Gunnar Bjornsson's performance that I just couldn't penetrate you know he's playing this guy who's cut himself off from so much even himself in some ways and he doesn't really give you much of an in but the more i watch it especially watching it last year when they did kind of a touring retrospective of bergman's work i saw this and the other two films back to back to back which was quite an evening uh but it really opened it up more for me and really i really recognized more and then especially re-watching it for this episode the interiority of it and i think the way that Bergman kind of makes it, it kind of denies the realism of it, I guess. There's some, a certain surreal quality to it, the way people keep popping up inside this church and the kind of gaps between the time. You know, Ark, you mentioned like the stuff that Bergman must have cut to get it down from his estimate of three hour, or two hours, but um, I think it's exactly those spaces that make it so effective that it feels like there are pieces missing that would precisely assemble all this, just as perhaps there are pieces missing from Pastor Erickson's life. But it, there's like, a certain dreaminess, I guess, a surrealitality that I hadn't really clued into the first couple of times I watched it when I was younger. Um, is that something you guys noticed? Or, I mean, feel free to speak to uh, Gunnar Bernstein's performance, which, like I said, the more I watch it, the more remarkable it is. I think he does a lot with just the way he looks at people and the way he tries to guard himself but can't quite. Uh, I think is very effective. 
Well, yeah, his his stare. I mean, there's there's obviously a few really key moments where you know Bergman is, you know, his mastery of the close up is is on full display here, and and I think you know uh, Bjornstrand's close ups in particular are so evocative. Uh, you see the anguish and the torment, and the this this you know unforgiving self consciousness that that is just tormenting him you know he's he's in this position of of authority he's an ordained you know a, a pastor uh, he, he's a minister of the gospel he's looked upon as someone who's you know uh not only required but somehow skilled and and even divinely ordained to give these you know uh, words of comfort uh, and yet he himself is just at a complete loss he's he's recognizing you know, the the fraud that he's become and you just see all that all that pain all that just squirming discomfort you know, you know just kind of blazing out of his eyes he uh, he has nowhere to hide and yet he still has to perform whether it's the ritual of communion the consolation the the words of of um of counsel and and uh, an insight and, and reassurance that he's supposed to give to this uh, you know suicidal man with his you know pregnant dependent wife staring there saying you know basically save my husband I've tried everything and and you're my last hope uh, I mean what an incredible pressure he's under and yet uh, you know he he he's got to keep the brave face. And it's only in those moments of isolation uh, where he he can let the guard down, but even then, uh, there, there's no relief. There's no there's no escape. And and just the way he uh, captures the essence of being in this you know extremely uncomfortable position of both responsibility, but also recognizing his own failure and uh, not knowing where to turn. I mean, it's just. Uh, you know, you, you, <laughs> you feel for the guy, but at the same time, you don't necessarily admire him. He's like gotten himself into this position. And, uh, you know, while I can't say here's what his solution ought to be, you just feel like he's he's kind of blown it. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's such a, such a complicated series of emotions and thoughts that he stirs up as I contemplate this this figure. In some ways, he relates to me to the the knight from the from the Seventh Seal, Max von Sydow's character, where it's like, um, here is this man who's working as a, a, a Lutheran minister and who himself is 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 almost hollowed out by this God's silence, right? That he's he feels like he's praying into a void, or he feels like he's he's reaching out into darkness and uh, or silence, or this. Spider God, I think they mention again in this one, tying it into the, there are a couple tie-ins with the previous film, but um, uh, uh but at the same time, w- w- what could be more religious in some sense than someone who spends all of their time um, struggling with the lack of a an intimate connection that they have with God, or with wanting to um, somehow get that sort of Gnostic level uh, experience of the uh, of of the, an existence of God, or 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 some sort of something to to sort of calm. And and especially for someone whose entire day, as we see, is spent ministering to first of all very few people, 
like in the services, but the people who are there are so lost and so disconnected from their uh, fellow humans. Uh, you know, that they, 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 the, I think the uh, other people have pointed out that the Swedish title of this film actually translates to the communicants, which is supposed to be sort of a pun on both the idea that they, or a double meaning on the idea that they're receiving communion literally in the film, but also that they are, have no communication with each other or even with themselves. And I don't know. I find that all uh, fascinating as sort of a look into uh, Bergman's own uh, sort of lifelong struggle with the religion of his youth and stuff. I, but I, I, I did want to ask David a question if I can. Sure. Go ahead. Um, so you have spoken before about being sort of a child of the sixties to some extent. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the sort of the, the, the Jonas character, the Max von Sydow fisherman? How did you feel about his suicide being motivated by a fear of Chinese nuclear weapons? Well, you know, I definitely grew up in the, uh, you know, the atomic age, the height of the Cold War. I remember like, um, you know, in my like seven, eight, nine years old, just under just coming to grips with the idea of the atomic bomb and and, uh, you know, I remember earliest the, the idea of just these mushroom clouds, these massive explosions, like they just look pretty awesome, you know. But then I started recognizing when you start seeing these, you know, those old films of houses being blown to, to, to splinters uh, just by the shockwave, let alone the, the flaming fireball and all of that, but just the impact of the of the wind just, just annihilating everything in its path and realizing, you know, that human bodies will just disintegrate under that kind of uh, assault and and then you start hearing about you know kiloton bombs and megaton bombs and you know mega deaths and all of that and it's just like this this nightmare scenario so that that gripped my imagination as a as a as an adolescent child and i imagine for some people as adults i mean you think about the the you know, the conspiracy theories and the kind of fringy stuff that is so prevalent in so many communities nowadays with, you know, and I won't get too political, but, you know, there's just all kinds of notions out there that, you know, these malevolent powers are out there steering humanity. And and uh, the idea that the Chinese, which at that time were probably seen by many in the West as this exotic, inscrutable species of humanity that was now coming into power and, you know, much less the the Russians were at least, you know, part of this, you know, kind of global system. And now the Chinese were like this rogue element that all of a sudden mm-hmm. had the atomic bomb. And, and uh, you know, from a somewhat, you know, naive and I'll even say racist perspective, the, the fear, I'm sure, was very palpable if you let that just kind of run away with you. And uh, if there wasn't something else to kind of anchor you to more of a stable, hey, you know, what it is, it is what it is, and we'll just have to make the best of it and get through it. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a screenplay, and I think that the, the dialogue between uh, Tomas and, and Jonas kind of gets into a little bit of that where they he's trying to sort of talk him off the ledge a bit here <laughs> very poorly but but, <laughs> but yeah extremely poorly uh but it's kind of like what can you do i mean it's so far out of our control and yet once that fear grips you and once you start you know kind of visualizing and kind of you know hyper focusing on what kind of an annihilation is perhaps just around the corner just the push of one button away 
uh, man, if you don't have something within you to offset that fear, it just becomes all-consuming. So I didn't, I didn't find it implausible or, or absurd at all. Um, you know, it, 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 now here we are, you know, 50 odd years later saying, well, it, that never happened. You know, what a, what a waste of a life. But I think, I think Bergman was tapping into something that, uh, was not, you know, completely out of left field. Just this idea that, you know, one atomic bomb exploding in the wrong place in time could, could trigger, uh, unleashing the full arsenal you know kind of you know dr strangelove was not that far down the road uh fail safe another you know atomic age you know fear fest uh you know people were really seriously concerned it, it felt like it was just a matter of time between between now and when everything was going to fall apart and it was definitely a fear that bergman shared uh i was reading about the film earlier and that Exactly that anecdote about reading something about the possibility of the Chinese acquiring a nuclear weapon was something that he read, and he put that his own fear of that into the screenplay. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, I think it's hard for us to imagine, even David as a child of the '60s, um, the vast transformation if you grew up before World War II into this new world where, yeah, at any moment the entire world could be destroyed, and especially living in Sweden, which you know was famously neutral in World War II, you got to figure that on some level Bergman felt he was just at the whims of like people he didn't understand and would never have any contact with. You know, the, the entire world could blow up because the Americans or the Russians or, yeah, the Chinese just get a hair about it. Like, that, that has to be pretty uh, terrifying to confront. And I think that for, for this film in particular, that fear is there not just of nuclear... Bleh. <laughs> nuclear annihilation, but of the idea that the stability you once felt in the universe, your you know humanity's place within it, the Earth's place, you know this this stable, ongoing, you know pressing forward, progressing um, species, really could be taken out and just become dust, you know, in the in the cosmos, and that relates to the pastors. Uh, own um, experience of his meaning that the the choices that he has made to become a pastor were based on some beliefs and probably some experiences that were special to him that now seem to be completely annihilated and I think you, you look around and that stable force is is no longer there uh, how do you move forward in a world where all all things all meaning, all experiences, all relationships, all emotions can be taken away just like that. And and yet it, it feels so personal because that's kind of what has happened here to this man. You know, he, he's he's talking and trying to comfort Jonas, but he, he doesn't... It's not just that he feels like he's a failure and unable to articulate hope. It's that he no longer has any belief in the words that he's supposed to say you know his flock is leaving and he doesn't blame them at all for this but he somehow has to keep the performance going because that's all he's got that's all all he is right now um and it's coming to kind of a head with this it's like well, you it's mentioned. so interesting oh no go ahead Ark. <laughs> i just what i was gonna say it's like you mentioned you know he he feels a real duty to do his job 
even though he's personally struggling and his struggles probably are directly impacting the amount of people who are in the church as well. Do you think he feels a duty or he just has no other direction? I mean, I I think he'd gladly quit if he knew what else he could go into. I, I think it's more of a rich, of just... How else do you put your foot forward the next day? I, I don't feel necessarily a sense of duty anymore. I feel that pure exhaustion of this is this is the role I'm performing and I have no other role to play right now. Well, I think there's kind of a transition between the two scenes he has with Max von Sydow's character. You know, the first one where it's set out his wife coming to him Um you can see like almost a switch flip where he goes into kind of pastor mode and he knows the things he said before and like, we'll come down and sit and like, we'll talk this through. Uh, especially, I think I really like the way he uh, assures that uh, I'm going to look, keep forgetting Max von Sydow's character's name. Um, Jonas. Jonas. The way he keeps assuring that Jonas will come back, you know, he's like, you know, you're, 10 minutes away. So I'll see you here in a half an hour. You know, he, he's clearly gone through this process before. He knows how to set guidelines. He knows how to kind of run the rounds of communicating with people. And then Jonas leaves and he has that moment where he's like, you know, I had no idea what to say. I could only speak in platitudes. And so by the time Jonas comes back, you can feel that at least I do that. Uh, Pastor Erickson is really trying to, communicate something deeper about himself and about the world about his experience and let Jonas know that like, even if he may speak in platitudes that he totally shares a sense of doubt, a sense of hopelessness and that these are okay and perfectly reasonable things to confront, but he just bumbles it and has seemingly no idea how to convey that in a way that would uh, remain sympathetic and understanding and compassionate and that could relate himself to Jonas. And so I think by the time then Jonas kills himself, I think that's the moment where he is just devoid of anything else to do. And I think even after the scene is pretty weakened, but I I do think in that scene, he really feels a connection to something he once did about the potential of his job and the potential of really connecting to somebody, you know, and about some issues that he is facing himself. Someone in the- Yeah, I I think- Please, please go ahead. Okay, sure, I'll go. Pastor Tomas is trying to keep it real, you know? He's trying to say, okay, I'll just, you know, set the the frock and the vestments aside and let's just talk man to man. And so he's saying, let me just tell you how I see it. Let me tell you how it is for me. And, of course, then he just, you know, commits this fundamental error of just talking about himself. (laughs) And so (laughs) even though he's trying to connect on this very, you know, gut level, you know, straight-talking uh, I'm using all this American slang here, but uh, I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to communicate from a place of authenticity, but he doesn't quite recognize or catch himself about his own self-absorption and how completely indifferent uh, uh, Jonas is to you know, whatever Pastor Tomas's personal plight is. Uh, Jonas is, you know, he's, he, I mean, he's, he's at a different level and he may be indeed quite unreachable at this point. I mean, he's got, he's got children at home. He's got a pregnant wife. You know, if that's not enough to anchor him to the here and now, I'm not sure there's a story or an anecdote that the pastor can tell him that's going to snap him out of it. But what he does, uh, what Tomas does by kind of getting into his own business is just 
basically, I think, convinces Jonas that there is just no answer. There's no God out there that's going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, absolve his fears and, and his his existential you know, misery. Uh, whatever it is that he's getting away from, uh, this is his solution. It's It's going to be, you know, putting a bullet through his head and leaving this world behind. I mean, it's, you know, ultimately a very... Uh, I don't know. Just a, it's a it's a very self absorbed thing that he does, and yet it it basically knocks the knees out from underneath the pastor, because his effort to try to connect on this basic level has just you know led to sort of a a, a disaster, and it it is it's it's very excruciating, and yet you think about wow this incredible awful crisis has has occurred between services, <laughs> and he sort of does his business he eventually goes on to talk to the widow and and then he's got to get right back at it i mean it's it's almost unbelievable how composed he is in the in the aftermath of this of this personal tragedy um and yet he's you know he's made that decision and and then he's got his own personal thing going on too with uh with marta you know and and that's a whole nother level of of torment as uh and he's and he's also grieving his his uh departed wife and you know for whatever reason that particular loss even though it's been several years is really hitting home and it's just it's just another very kind of underscored uh depiction of grief and how you know time passes but that loss doesn't just go away uh over the course of a few years my my comments about the sort of um, uh, doing his job uh, comes from someone in, in the Sioman documentary. I don't remember if it was Bergman himself who said it or if it was the props guy or who said it, but it sort of did resonate with me. But I think it, that could be true and what uh, Trevor was saying could be true, that he's kind of like he all he has at the end of the day is is just his duty. And someone says that, you know, as long as there's one person in the church, he he feels the need to do to do his sermon, even though it's kind of, he doesn't believe in it and it's not necessarily, or he doesn't necessarily believe in it at that point. And it doesn't necessarily reach anybody. And, you know, why are they sort of doing this? And even the, um, a cor- the, uh, what is it called? The, uh, musician guy, the, uh, organ player, organist, the organist yeah, yeah, the organ player, the organist doesn't really, he's like, why are we doing this? Like, can I just go home? But, uh, but you know, he does it anyway, but I think that that could be both, you know, that sense of duty. And then also that to, to Trevor's point, he just doesn't, there's just no other step before him, especially because was it during the um, during his conversation with Jonas where he says, you know, uh, basically refutes the love angle from through a glass darkly. Is that when that happened? Anyone remember? Uh, I, d- I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember specifically. I can't remember if he said that to Jonas or he said that to Marta. But I, th- I think he said it to Jonas. I, d- I should know this. But anyway, yeah. So it's like he doesn't. Yeah. To, to David's point, he just kind of goes off on a rant about his own issues <laughs> with this guy who <laughs> yeah. just needs something and is looking to him for you know some answer, some reason to get through the day. Uh, whereas to your point, like even you know four kids and one on the way isn't enough or whatever it is. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think. Uh, uh, it's it's fascinating this the the his side and then we'll obviously we'll probably get into his relationship with Marta, which takes the whole thing to the next uh, the next level. 
Just one more thing on that conversation with Jonas and him talking about himself. I have always kind of looked at it as him trying to to you know he's preaching to himself too. He I really don't think he's talking to Jonas uh, toward you know about halfway through that conversation. It's it's more of an interior thing of, of trying to yeah. convince himself, and then you know that just isn't going anywhere either. <laughs> so. <laughs> No, totally. Yeah, he he he's not even because I think when he sends Jonas away and he expects him back at that moment in time, he's kind of uh, to someone said kind of snapped into it. But then by the time Jonas actually gets back, he's I think he's read the letter right, and he's kind of like gone into his fever dream area. And I don't think he's really in the right frame of mind or or moment to uh. You know, by the way, did that um. This is another thing I learned from this uh, documentary that that the that Gunnar Bjornstrand himself was actually suffering from some kind of flu like thing. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And, and Bergman gave him fake drugs so that he oh, wouldn't I didn't get know that. better. <laughs> yeah. He had his doctor give him something that actually made it worse so that he would feel worse on set. Like that is brutal. That's what we did to Scott tonight too. <laughs> It's so mean. <laughs> but look at the great art. That For sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's always that excuse All anyway. worth it. Uh, now um, it is, you know, 55, yeah, 60 years everyone, later. <laughs> yeah. Now that they're all dead. Yeah, I was uh, going to say that, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, our uh, nod to get into the relationship with him and Marta is a good point of departure um, because I think their relationship is in some ways the most interesting part of the film, especially the more I watch it and especially that scene where, well, he reads the letter, but really she reads it to us. I mean, it's such like a distillation of how simple Bergman's approach could be, but how complex it could be by the end. I mean, the more I watch it, like she barely even blinks throughout the entire take. It's an incredible performance and she doesn't, you know, indulge the letter more than it needs to be. It's a pretty, flat reading all things considered if there's something kind of yearning in her voice that's so so intriguing and so compassionate um and just the way their relationship kind of evolves or devolves throughout the film uh i mean i think she's kind of in some ways trying to keep tomas alive you know he talked we've talked about how he you know wouldn't be doing the service if no one was there and so as long as she's the one person he has somewhere to be and some purpose to keep going and the fact that she just keeps doing that even after their last horrible scene together at the schoolhouse is so remarkable and so kind of sad on her part, too, that she has, you know, so little else to cling to other than this vague hope that maybe the, they can rekindle the romance they had and which clearly didn't work out. But, uh, you know, and she's just as in some ways just as devout as he is and just as lost in that devoutness, getting a similar kind of silence from the person she's uh devoted to i think it's such a great performance mm-hmm. i think ingrid dulin is such an underrated actress in bergman's company but here she's really incredible it's super weird to see her it was it was it was difficult for me at first to see her playing such a sort of subservient character and and someone who seems weak on the surface although in fact i think is incredibly strong but you know i i only had seen her i, I think in only in wild strawberries or certainly that's the role i most associate with her and she's such a force of nature in that movie you know uh so to see her kind of like a little bookish in this film at first is 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 was quite weird but then it, it her character just opens opens up and it's it's such a depth of 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 a person uh, like you know there's so many layers to her personality to her personality and her performance like she's she's got like to your point yeah she's she's decided she's in love with this guy that she kind of is trapped with in some kind of weird way she's 
not a believer or ostensibly not a believer in his religion, but at the same time has decided recently to pray and has, has a, or, or is revealing to him that she prayed for something and that it came true. Uh, she's gruesomely describing these, um, these sores that she had. She's, uh, they have that insanely compelling scene where he, you know, he yells at her and he tells her all these awful things. And then he's just like, so you want to come with me? And she's like, all right. <laughs> you know, like you kind of get the sense they've, <laughs> they've done this before. Cause what else has she got to do? You know, it, it mirrors exactly. his thing really well. Yeah, totally. She's just like, well, I'm kind of, I've, I've hitched my wagon to this guy and I'm just going to be here until I, he literally won't let me be here anymore. Cause I don't have anywhere else to go. And you know, she gets accused by that one person of, Oh, you're just an old spinster who doesn't, who can't be so choosy. But I don't think that, that that's it at all. She's just like they have a really intense and and real and crazy relationship. And um, yeah, it's 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 a remarkable performance and another one that if with the wrong, you know, you think back to uh, uh, you know, some of the earlier what, what what's his the the first film in the new set uh, uh or or Ship to India where that one character is just super miscast and it's like if that had happened in this film. If one of these two characters had been miscast at all, it would have been a disaster. You know, one thing uh, while we're on with their relationship, I, I think something that's very f- central to the film is the idea of abandonment, uh, which we get more explicitly when he's talking with the organist, with Algot, uh, at the end of the film. But I like how these characters feel abandoned. Uh, with Jonas abandoning his family, his wife feeling abandoned by him because, hey, even if you had these feelings, you just left me with children. You left me alone. Um, you've got uh, the uh, pastor feeling abandoned by God, feeling abandoned by his wife. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got Marta, who is still devoted. And you start to look at it as, when do you abandon these false causes or at least what, what things you don't believe in anymore? Uh, when should she abandon him and get on with her life, abandon this sense of identity that is toxic and, and, and bad for her in particular? You know, when do you uh, stop being who you thought you were and become something else rather than just continuing the role of being who you think you should be because that's who you decided you need to be? You know, some, or some earlier version of you decided this was good, it's not, but you, you you don't have the courage to abandon it yourself. And I think that the layers of abandonment and as well as identity and maybe the the idea that you should be the one doing the abandoning is just a fascinating, um, uh, t- terrifying uh, theme in this film. Well, yeah, and I and I guess I want to talk to that uh, that idea of uh, is this a calling? You know, uh, you know. Uh, Pastor Tomas is is called to the ministry, or at least he thought he was when he was a young man. He, you know, there's some dialogue, um, and his parents pushed him into it. Exactly, his parents pushed him into it, and he sort of, you know, kind of went along, and in that process, you know, uh, filled himself with the notion that this was a a divine uh, vocation, that, that this was not just his preferences or him taking the path that had been laid out before him, but that, you know, the almighty God himself had said, here is, here is the, the destiny that I have bestowed upon your life. Uh, and, and now he's, he's at a place where does he dare reject that? Uh, was that just a whim of a moment? Was he fooling himself or is he, uh, 
you know, is he being tested here? Is he supposed to carry on and, and push through these, this, uh, this, this low place, this, this valley of doubt and despair and, and find that, uh, you know, uh, redemption at the end of the process. And I, and I think, you know, this is where it becomes a little bit uh, biographical for Bergman, who himself, you know, had wrestled not only with these religious theological questions, but also his own sense of of who was who was he as an artist, uh, who was he as a as a human being. Uh, some of the backstory I was reading some of the uh, the the notes about this film uh, from the Bergman archive, that uh, big beautiful Taschen volume, and. At this time, he had he had kind of, as he said, he'd grown tired of his bohemian lifestyle, and he had married a, uh, I think, a concert pianist, and had settled into a very comfortable bourgeois suburb of Stockholm, and and had kind of adopted the the pose of a successful you know artiste and uh you know living in a fashionable home and and uh you know all the creature comforts that that come in that with that station in life and yet we also know that he didn't stay there so he himself on even on a very personal level was wrestling with, with questions of his own identity even though this was at the point of his career that you might say he was probably at his absolute peak of, of influence and cultural cachet and and popularity I mean he certainly went on to make fantastic you know great indelible films but I think you know Bergman in the early 60s was at the very height of his you know hipness and and cutting edge uh, respect and and acclaim and finding himself also at this place of you know restlessness and dissatisfaction so I mean there's all kinds of you know, intriguing tangents that can be spun out of this but I think the fundamental idea of people not finding contentment in what's right there before him before them and and wondering well what else is there and and perhaps not even knowing what that other goal or or uh, alternative might be but thinking that's whatever it is (laughs) is what's going to you know, satisfy me, and 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 even those sub those uh, subsidiary characters like Algot and his theological ponderings that kind of you know I think you know you did a, you know good job kind of highlighting that Trevor as a kind of a unifying theme at the towards the conclusion of the film as he's he's pondering you know Christ's abandonment by by his heavenly Father uh, beyond this the physical torments or the uh, betrayal of his disciples but that sense that god himself had forsaken him uh that that is the true torment and passion of christ yeah i suffered more than jesus did on the cross is an interesting thing for someone to say <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's uh but it, i like it, where it definitely takes a bold it. comment yeah you it know, goes I, in a really interesting direction yeah and 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 I also like, David, you highlight that this isn't just a religious quandary in this film. I mean, it is. It's a pastor dealing with faith and his his um, doubts. But it's about anybody who deals with that in their life. You know, someone who has a profession that they believed in that they no longer do. Or a, or a relationship that they believed in but no longer do. Or doesn't seem to be working for them or or any kind of belief anything that we've set up for what we kind of not just stake our identity but our view of the world that stability again and when that is is uh is messed with boy it can be just 
really harsh and 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 devastating and and so it doesn't i i've, I've talked to a lot of people who kind of just ah, i don't i don't really care about films that are about religion and you know i mean david you and i have talked about it i i'm a religious person and and mm-hmm. so i do think i i see that part and I, that helps my views of these films but i look at this as a human issue and not just the human issue of faith and doubt but of anybody who's out in this world and and starts to lose this sense of who they are or or who they who they thought they were the people around them who they thought they were and has to carry on anyway you know keeps going um like algot says at the end it's 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 being abandoned and and living through it and pushing forward that, that all these characters have to do that isn't isolated to you know one one's religious faith or or lack thereof it's it's so much more broad and human human than that yeah for sure and i think part of like marta's commitment to remaining at least in the town and kind of by extension at tomas's side is this is might be me reading too much into one moment but i really like the scene at the schoolhouse beyond the conversation she has with tomas but the scene earlier with the kid who kind of wanders in, you know, Tomas has no idea who this kid is. He has to ask him whose family he belongs to. And he like has a loose sense of who his brother is. And that's about it. And then on the way out, uh, the boy runs into Marta who knows, you know, the kid's first name. She knows not only whose brother is, but that his brother has been sick. You know, she has a lot of uh, intimate knowledge of his personal life and something to relate to. And it feels like, she's probably, you know, kind of the one good force for the the kids, you know. They might have their own troubles. Uh, maybe their home life is whatever. And so, as with most kids, you know, you look, kind of look to these communal spaces, and if that's not being provided at church, but maybe is being provided at school, you know, that's that's a good that she can do, and I wonder the extent to which she's also holding on to that. Yeah, in a sense, they're both uh, tending to... Uh, the flock that is the community that they're in in different ways, which might maybe gives them a a sense of uh, a commonality that they can, you know, relate to with each other or not as the case may be. And as the moment may be in the movie. Yeah. And the fact that Tomas is like pretty much abandoning his own, it kind of puts all the more weight on her. You have to imagine. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. So, you know, as we, as we look at this, this scene, I mean, I, I do wonder about the state of, of organized religion in Sweden. I mean, the, these congregations are just so incredibly anemic. <laughs> I think about, <laughs> wow. I mean, was that a, uh, an accurate or even fair representation of the state of, uh, you know, uh, Lutheran piety in uh, Scandinavia in the early 1960s. I, I, you know, um, I think this film was was pretty well received, and it was also at a time where uh, there was certainly again a uh, you know kind of a sense of the diminishment of of uh, Christian orthodoxy as a as a ruling force. I mean, there there was certainly you know conventional piety. And there was, uh, you know, uh, and, and its connections to morality and, and uh, decency and all of that. Um, you know, Bergman is certainly not uh, depicting uh, 
you know, healthy congregations where, you know, maybe a majority of citizens or at least a substantial uh, portion of the respectable populace, uh, you know, comes to church and even, even if they're just going through the motions. Which just, I think a lot of them kinda, are, yeah. you know, this, oh, is, well, this yeah. is their role they've been brought up to play too. They, they're, mm-hmm, they're there mm-hmm. just because that's what you do on church time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah, know about but, the I mean, 60s, it, but I can tell you that over the last, like, 30, since 72 religion, people who identify as belonging to the church have gone from, like, 95% of Sweden to 59% of Sweden. So it's just been a, a constant sort of downward arrow. Uh, yeah, the yeah. But, I mean, even then, I mean, you know, would these scenes have a different uh, dramatic impact if there had been... sure. You know, thirty or forty people in the pews versus you know single digits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it just it's just it's just the, it's the visuals of it. I mean, uh, you know, Bergman is certainly uh, yeah, and and, of, and you know, you've got winter storm conditions, and you've got all the elements kind of conspiring against us, and and it's this very compressed time frame. So, and and the pastor himself is sickly, and. Uh, you know, and there's probably even a hint of scandal. I mean, I guess it's it's fairly well known that he was, you know, cohabitating with this woman, and that's a that's not a very proper thing to do <laughs> for a man of the cloth. <laughs> uh, so you know, so there's a lot of you know, um, you know, f- human frailties and inconsistencies on display here. But I guess I go back to the point uh, that I guess I've already made a couple times of just characters. Um, you know, at a loss to even identify what it is that that uh, that is going to bring some sense of satisfaction, and I and I and I think that that restlessness, that that unease, uh, is probably what what draws so many people to admire this film. I think I think this is probably one of the most widely praised Bergman films. I mean, there are others that are you know, pretty, pretty, uh, well regarded, but you know, the seventh seal also has its detractors and crazy and maybe people. Persona. Yeah. Well, I, I know, I know we, we, we covered that on. several episodes on. ago. Sorry. But, but it, it seems, yeah. <laughs> but it seems like winter light is, is probably in that upper tier. And Arik, I also just wanted to reiterate the point about the casting. Mm. I think this is just another example of Bergman's, complete mastery of his craft i mean the fact that he could whittle this thing down to you know 81 minutes and uh and produce you know pretty much a stone cold masterpiece uh with 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 no padding no fluff apparently like they did film the suicide scene but they decided not to show that I, i i think it would have been uh, that would have been a distraction. I think. I think they. They maybe it was just discretion or just how graphic do they want to get. But I think the the bleakness of it all of a sudden. It's, you know, not even hearing a gunshot. It's just all of a sudden he's he's just gone under a tree like that. Uh, that that minimalism I think served him well. And and his understanding of of who to cast. I mean, Gunnar Lindblom is pretty much more of a supporting character except maybe the silence i think she come it comes more to the lead here but uh she, our, our next episode I, I should probably put that little teaser out there obviously <laughs> but but i think she also does a very good job and and uh in not a very you know uh, flattering or glamorous role but uh yeah he, he he's got the right faces and the right presence for for each of these uh 
each of these performances. Well, it speaks to the minimalism you were talking about that, you know, he cast people who could convey a lot in very little time. I think she's a prime example of that. And also speaking to the suicide scene, like it just wouldn't have made sense in the architecture of the movie, which never leaves Tomas's perspective, you know, to do so would feel like a betrayal of kind of the film's purpose that it's set out to do. And I think that also gets into the notions of like the dwindling congregation, like in some ways, so much of the film is a representation of his inner turmoil. You know, you could read this as entirely his thoughts late at night, you know, it's entirely a representation of his spiritual doubt. Then each character kind of reflects a different component of it. And it just, that doubt just wouldn't ring true if he had a full church, you know, the church has to be as empty as his sense of purpose. It's something that Bergman does so brilliantly in the film where, the, um, and he talks about it in, in the, before he made the film, he was talking about it with, uh, in the documentary, but he, the, the idea that silence is the, is the factor that will like affect people watching the movie, which of course, you know, the next one is called the silence. So I look forward to seeing what that, how that works there. But, uh, in this film, you know, I think the gunshot would have in a weird way would have maybe taken it out of that. Also, I completely agree with you that we don't want to lose his perspective, especially because we're not necessarily supposed to be a hundred percent sure how much of this is happening and how much of this is not happening. Uh, it's not, not really supposed to be at like the conscious level of like, Oh, this is maybe a dream, but just kind of like the exact details are perhaps not, there's like a sense that maybe something, there's something else. Cause the, the, the tone can shift so, uh, quickly. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's really like the, the chamber form, distilled down to its most potent uh, impact can i can i ask a question that i hadn't ever thought of before until you you're talking Please. about his perspective um and never leaving it and i agree with that other than the the scene where he drives to the suicide and we're kind of out in the distance with the snow falling and it's quiet like we can't hear the conversation anymore we know what's happened but we're distant that's Am I right there? He's up there talking. I, it, I, it happens and a couple we can't times. hear him, right? The, there's a scene in the car as well where that happens. And the reason, yeah, there's a couple of scenes the train, where it feels the train like crossing, they might right. have like recorded dialogue and then chose not to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be as simple as that. Um, but it does have a, a well, eerie effect of just kind of people speaking, but nothing's coming out. Uh, I like that it's just kind of at the traces where you can wonder if it's like, you know... You, write a whole thing about it being the entire point of the film or maybe it is just something that happened but it does kind of lend a strange kind of dreamlike quality to it it reminds me of a of a part in the virgin spring uh to toward the end where in max von Sydow's character and i'm not going to spoil the movie anybody who hasn't watched it yet um but he's he's praying but we're kind of off in the distance toward his and we're looking at his back and he's not even in the center of the screen it's just, it's a strange way of framing it and i think bergman does that from time to time and i'd never put it into winter light but there's something f- similar to it there now i think it works well in both films it, it it shifts things around just a little bit puts the audience um some distance between everything that's going on um, with the Virgin Spring, I, I look at it as uh, you know a, a very clear thematic um, reason that he did that that he doesn't do the typical shot. With um, with Winter Light, I'm just thinking what can I maybe glean from the fact that he does leave Tomas's perspective a few times, including in that part. You know, is there something that I can I can go 
with that on. I, I'm not sure, because that's the first time I've ever really realized that we're very close to him throughout, except for those those few parts. Could be accidental, but I, I think I think we can manipulate it into something profound. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, if you read the screenplay, there are some. It's 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 there is some dialogue that was not included in the film that takes place over the body of Tomas uh, between a uh, you know a superintendent and uh, some of the uh, officials that that go and assist him. I mean, all we see is just kind of the the dial not the, not the dialogue but the exchange at a distance uh, kind of mute with the with the rushing of the waters and kind of this you know expanded uh, you know horizon if you will uh, of this scene taking place out of doors uh, which which I think you're yeah, that's a good observation for it it does kind of bring that moment into more of a vivid contrast it reminds us that these events are happening in a larger world uh, rather than the the, the 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 chamber of the pastor's quarters and the and the uh, you know the stuffy confines of these Nordic churches, uh, and then it zeroes right back in on this you know kind of intense interpersonal face to face type of situations that you know make up the bulk of the film. Yeah. So yeah, a wider uh, world and one that almost can't even hear what's going on because of all the commotion of other things. There, well, there's the river. So yeah, there, there's a, I don't know, there, there's a sense that I'm, I'm not quite articulating that I'm feeling. Maybe I'll try some other time, I guess. But that that pullback it, it makes the film very stark, and it, you know, kind of goes on my thoughts of the title that we chose for English, the Winter Light. I mean, there's just some glaring light in that moment of that can be both blinding but also way too clear. And the fact that this little human drama is happening, eh, you know, kind of down in the corner, uh, you wouldn't even know about it if you were, you know, not in, in view of it all. That's true. I mean, there, there are there are big, I mean, the suicide, of course, is a big life-changing event for everybody involved, and yet most of it is is very downbeat. It's just, you know, conversations, dialogues, uh, interiorized struggles, uh, nothing that's going to make headlines, and even the suicide itself is just, you know, it's it's sad, but it's, you know, in a strange way, it's not really devastating. Even even, uh, you know, the widow's reaction when when she realizes her husband is dead, she's like, well, I guess it was going to happen one of these days. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. It's it's pretty staggering, uh, maybe because we're used to these situations being melodramatized, uh, both in our entertainment and then also just putting ourselves in, in in the shoes of these people, and yet they're a little blunted, a little, a little uh, emotionally numbed to to these developments. And again, that's that must must be some depiction of of not just Bergman's own life, but what he was seeing happening around him in society as a whole. I'd imagine also if you live with, oh, sorry, I was just going to say I, I would imagine also having lived with him for like a year and kind of going to the pastor as a last resort, she maybe wasn't as shocked about it, although obviously, right. you know, still affected. The finality. Right. It wasn't as, was, it probably wasn't a surprise, though. I also wondered, and I was curious of your thoughts, if she maybe blames Tomas for it on some level. I mean, the fact that uh, Jonas 
was there just before well, he's talking to the pastor just before he committed suicide and the way she speaks to him you know she's like you know he offers to read the bible with her she says no he offers yeah. any comfort or help and she just gives him this look that's very sharp and says you know we'll make the funeral arrangements and kind of like that's it uh there's mm-hmm. something very like kind of standoffish about it that it really seems to get under Tomas's skin and certainly got under mine i think I, even if she doesn't blame him she has no interest in whatever he has to offer her at that yeah. point she she doesn't want his his platitudes she's very well aware that 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 means nothing to to for coming from him maybe particularly but even for her at that moment that is not what she needs she doesn't want to read the bible she doesn't want to hear how everything's going to be okay she doesn't want to hear he's in a better place you know she is grieving um and is going to do it in her own terms and and he 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 comes off as offensive um which you know i yeah. see quite often um even in my community well and and as i i was rewatching again just tonight and i i noticed in the very beginning opening scene where they're taking communion she didn't seem particularly enthusiastic or i mean she kind of went through the motions herself and you do kind of wonder if she was just kind of well let's give religion one last shot at it maybe she's been through whatever other resources i'm sure she's begged and pleaded with him talk to his parents if there's so i mean you know you, you can sort of speculate but uh, i'm not sure the depth of her own piety here you know and, and so maybe she was just as disappointed and and underwhelmed by uh uh pastor tomas's performance uh in their initial dialogue but you know she kind of played that last card saw that it didn't really turn the trick and you know, she's kind of just shrugged it off and it's like, well, so much for religion. I think the two of you and, make an, an, an awesome point because um, Bergman has t- talked about how uh, sort of the the reason he abandoned or moved on from his idea from through the glass, through a glass darkly that God is love and that's the proof of God's existence was that that wasn't enough. That wouldn't be enough for someone who was contemplating suicide because of Chinese, fear of Chinese war aggression, right? And so... It would make sense if it's like, yeah, uh, nothing I can do is getting to my husband. I'll give, like you said, David, I'll give religion one last try. And, oh, look, that's not going to work. And I'm not, I'm out, you know. And, and kind of Bergman's own at that point, uh, maybe disinterest in, or dis, disconnection with his own religion. Yeah, I think he considered this film a pretty fundamental break. I think I think Through a Glass Darkly was sort of his last stab at trying to make the old formulas work if you if you you know if that's an okay uh way of expressing it i think um winter light and again what i've read of his writings and his own regard for this film is kind of the, the maybe the first time that he just said you know uh screw popularity i'm not going to try to please the audiences here i'm just going to make my own movie because he had the you know um, the, the the artistic capital to do that, and I think that's another you know stroke in its favor. It's the it's the very uncompromising nature of what he did here. Uh, the fact that he's not really trying to <laughs> lighten the scene with with humorous little asides. Uh, there is no comic relief here. Uh, maybe Algot, you know, is probably the closest we get to a little bit of a, 
you know, a clown, but even so, he's a he's a pretty dismal, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, he's a likable character. I don't want to get that, you know, give that impression, but yeah, you know, he's he's not somebody who sort of, uh, you know, injects levity into the situation, uh, except of the grimmest sort. Uh, but because Bergman was able to make a film entirely on his own terms, and um, and and expresses himself so concisely and with such brilliance, I think a lot of people, including myself, say, "Wow, this is the straight, the straight stuff here." Algot, I don't, I don't see him. You know, a little bit, definitely a little bit lighter than most of the conversations we've had before that. Do you guys see him as somewhat hopeful, though? I, I kind of do. I There's something about him uh, persisting with his physical pain that matches what is hopeful about the film for me. That these characters all have something to move forward towards, hopefully, even if right now they don't see it, and that part of the beauty of this life is living through it it isn't all just roses you know you don't become a pastor and have everything just work out you don't go talk to someone who's suicidal and just it works out because you happen to input the right phrase you know it but but still moving forward still living through it I, I think that Algot represents that and I that's one of the reasons I do feel I don't know some not hope for necessarily even Pastor Tomas but um just hope in general for people. <laughs> well, I, th- I think Algot's uh, final message there, putting uh, life's sufferings in this larger context of, you know, again, of, of Christ's abandonment and and just really putting, you know, all of these disappointments and uh, fractures and relationship losses all the grief all the suffering and torment into this larger theological picture and again how how we relate to that message or what the specific components are of our own belief system that says this is why or this is what makes sense of it all um alga is the one figure in this film who's getting beyond just his own emotional neediness or dissatisfaction to say let's let's really try to step back and and you know get outside of ourselves uh, even from a you know what you might even call a cosmic perspective and say wow you know what's you know what's what's beyond just my own ego and its needs and its frustrations and its desires and cravings uh, to say you know um, you know how does how does how does this all level out I mean algo kind of you know broadens the perspective to that level and that might be the little bit that bolsters Tomas to you know turn around and once again <laughs> face his congregation of whatever it is one two three people and say holy 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 the whole world is full of his I think glory. it's just her at that at that point at that church but I yeah but I, well there's the organist sure. and I, I do agree with you both I guess um uh, that that the ending is it's like a very Bergman hopefulness. It's like the, it's like an incredibly, yeah, yeah. De- incredibly depressing hopefulness. Because basically, uh, you could you could view it as uh, 
as Tomas saying, you know, okay, I'm struggling with this, but this guy whose life is much worse than mine is also struggling with it. And he's talking about how un- unprompted, he's talking about how Jesus struggled with the, you know, the same idea that, that the worst part about uh, Jesus' suffering would have been God's silence when Jesus is saying like, oh, you did you, why have you forsaken, for, you know, forsaken me and all this kind of stuff. And then at the same time, uh, the, this woman that he, you know, has this relationship with, she should leave him but decides to pray again even though she's not religious and you know so you could see it kind of as like a uh a hopeful ending and at least at least for these people in some vague like i said bergmanian sense or is it just almost subverting all that to them all just putting back on their masks (laughs) and and performing their roles (laughs) yeah they'll all start again tomorrow right the whole cycle continues I mean, I prefer the more hopeful one in this case, I guess, but but it <laughs> yeah. certainly could well, be. Well, yeah, it, it really, it it comes down to each viewer. I mean, you, you just, you still just have to make that existential choice, you know, hope or despair, uh, purpose or futility, uh, uh, you know, grace or nihilism, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, there, you, you can't really escape having to uh, decide based on the evidence presented to you. Um, well, on that note, uh, <laughs> every listener now go face these problems. Go face in your all life your demons and, uh, and fears, and tell us what you think about it on social media. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, let's do this all over Facebook. That's where people want to <laughs> solve all their life problems. Um, just as some closing remarks on my part, I do want to, of course, mention Sven Nifka's, uh cinematography, uh, oh, which is yes. really lovely. I know he and Bergman spent a long time just studying the way light moves throughout the church. And while I might not have made that assessment without that anecdote, uh, I think the the work speaks for itself and that there's a real rigor to it and a real beauty. And it really uh, makes captivating what could be, uh, or what largely is a rather dreary affair, but makes it uh, into something uh, at least occasionally beautiful. I um, will even s- though Oh, sorry. No, even though it's just in these kind of... I mean, yeah, the church is in some sense beautiful but it's also run down and abandoned and for the most part it's just a bunch of people in fairly nondescript rooms but it has a certain uh rigor and loveliness to it kind of on that note i still don't have the the new blu-ray set um oh man oh but, man oh yeah i i know i know um, <laughs> but despair <laughs> meaninglessness <laughs> the weird thing is though of all of the perks of getting that set and there are many i want to watch this film in on on blu-ray i'm i love the shots even as they sh- have always shown up on my dvd uh the, I, this is the one thing that i would say is is most uh, you know, if if this whole, whole film itself were the the cost of the package, I would I would probably go forward with it because I, I it it can be very simple, but they capture so much beauty and that both that clarity and the and the the kind of weird patterns of light in winter that I just can't wait to see it on on a big beautiful high def uh, screen. Yeah, it's a pretty stunning transfer. So you're you're definitely. Good. It'll yeah. be well worth revisiting even yeah. so soon after this podcast. Uh, Ray does black and white so well, and, and even the sound design. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's it's not fancy or anything, but the the you know the footsteps and just the 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 very deliberate choice of of ambient soundtrack here uh, is. 
fantastic. So yeah, yeah, you'll you'll not be disappointed when you get that chance. Uh, does anyone else have anything they want to get to before we call it a day and resume our putting on our masks and going about society? <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean, it could launch a whole nother tangent. I, I will just kind of throw out there, you know, just just first reformed. I, I will rewatch that again this weekend as well, just to kind of. Uh, you know, kind of revisit some of those parallels and stuff. And, yeah, maybe that's a better saved for another conversation for another time. But I think these films really do make for a very interesting pairing uh, to watch in close proximity to each other, uh, at least for people who can, can, you know, can relate to the uh, contemporary American you know, church scene and, and, and the culture that we're in in uh, the USA at this time and, and maybe beyond just the uh, strictly American boundaries. Uh, Schrader obviously was, was deeply influenced and affected by this film. And uh, when I saw him at, uh, you know, here in Grand Rapids back in his hometown, uh, he gave a, you know, presentation. He, he even put, used the words blatant theft <laughs> in his uh, characteristic uh, remarks of, of um, you know, I actually had the, you know, the opportunity to ask him a question from the audience and, about an homage to Bergman and Bresson and some of the other formative influences. He says, oh, that's not an homage, it's blatant theft. <laughs> and I, well, well let's, let's just tell it like it is, Paul, you know. But uh, anyways, it just, just the, the, uh, these themes that kind of uh, recycle themselves and uh, speak with with added poignancy to our own lives and times. Uh, I, th- I think the two films pair very nicely, and and they there's the similarities are there, but they they go in their own direction, so it's not purely derivative. Um, but yeah, yeah, and 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 Arik, you had also talked about Ingmar Bergman makes a movie, mm. uh, the supporting documentary. I I am so glad. I mean, obviously. Yeah, uh, we we get some behind the scenes for Fanny and Alexander, but it is such a wonderful privilege to see uh, Bergman and Nikvist and the whole crew. Uh, that that uh, was it filming part one, the scene where uh, uh, Ingrid Tulin and and Gunnar Björnstrand are going through. I think it was eleven endless, takes of the scene. Endless rehearsal. Yeah, she yeah. right. She comes in, she blows her nose, and he has his little breakdown. Uh, by the window and and you know poor Thomas and, and all of that uh, you know it's such a simple scene that not exactly a throwaway it's a very critical scene in the film but it's it's maybe not the first one that comes to memory but you see all the 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 labor and the craftsmanship and the the intense focus and and there's Bergman right there you know right in the almost in the actors faces walking them through every little nuance of the scene and you just you just re- re- recognize how much intentionality went into every single shot of this film, uh, and yet they all kind of stream together in that you know, 80, 82-minute sequence there, and it rolls by. But uh, I, I'm so glad that we have Vilgat uh, Shulman uh, giving us two and a half hours of conversation about how this movie came into existence. It's a really really priceless uh now it's a supplement surprisingly it's surprisingly compelling anymore yeah mm-hmm. yeah it really is speaking of 82 minutes we're getting close guys <laughs> we could... coming up on it. well Ark, trevor do you have any final thoughts to take us there or uh, I, I, I don't i don't Art. no i'll i'll just say that i'm i'm very excited for the next uh the next time we all chat about bergman well, it'll be quite a departure. Uh, the Silence is a very interesting trip that I'm looking forward to diving into. 
Uh, but thank you guys for joining me again. I really, really like this discussion. As I said, this wasn't a film that I was immediately taken with back when I first saw it. And because of that, through the years, I've uh, reassessed it, I think, more than most Bergman films that I came to love right away. I think it, my relationship with this has evolved, and you guys have given me a lot to think about for the next time I get around to visiting, revisiting this film. Um, and I hope uh, listeners have enjoyed it as well. And we'll all be back, hopefully, before too long to wrap up the series. Uh, with the silence. Um, so thank you again and good night.